Alchemy is an ancient practice associated with science, chemistry, physics, astronomy, astrology, art, symbology, metallurgy, medicine, and philosophical analysis. And despite that these sciences were not exercised in a scientific way as known today, alchemy is the origin of modern logic. Dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to another episode of The Alchemy of Truth with your presenter Nasr Al Khatib and your co host Anna Rose Zaid. Assalamu alaikum, Anna Rose. Alaikum salam. How are you? Alhamdulillah, thank you. How are you? Alhamdulillah, I'm doing very well. And with our other co hosts as well, uh, Amr Sari. Amr, Assalamu alaikum, how are you? Alhamdulillah, how are you? Assalamu So, all our listeners? Still good. Thank you. Um, we are doing something different today. We have decided to brave the uh, the world of uh, Bankstown. Uh, usually we're in Fairfield and we're quite happy there. There's very good Iraqi food and very nice tea. But uh, Bankstown, we thought, why not get stabbed? You know, um, get our wallet stolen, things like that. Um, yeah, our guest. We are on location. Yes, yes, we are on location. Uh, it would be great if we were live, inshallah, next time we'll do it live. Our guest today is uh, Brother Aftab Malik, or Aftab A. Malik who has been called the rising intellectual star by the Muslim World Book Review and descri- described by someone as being at the cutting edge of research on Islam and at the heart of a group of young emerging Muslim scholars as well as established Muslim scholars by Professor Philip Lewis at the Department of Peace Studies, University of Bradford. He is, uh, so uh, there's many books written by uh, Brother Aftab. Is it brother or just doctor? Or doctor or just brother? Akhi, brother, Akhi. We will call you Bahr al Ulum, which is the, you know, Bahr al Ulum, okay. Uh, he's written many books such as The Broken Chain, Reflections Upon the Neglect of Tradition, Shattered Illusions, Analyzing the War on Terrorism, The Empire and the Crescent, Global Implications for a New American Century. This is our guest today, and we're very excited to have him. And we'd uh, like to uh, thank also uh, the guys from. Um, the uh, uh, we call it Lebanese Muslims Associations for giving us the time to speak to him. So we start with uh, Brother Bahr al Ulum Aftab uh, Malik. Uh, Salam alaikum and welcome to Australia. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you very much for allowing me to be on your great show. It's a pleasure. Okay, <laughs> I'm glad. How is how is the weather treating you in uh, Bankstown? <clears throat> I did, I thought it would be a lot more hotter than it would be uh, than it is actually is. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's England but colder. England but colder yeah. and uh, I can see that you have a very nice white shirt on no blood stains or anything like that so it's uh, good you weren't yeah. stabbed yet it's really funny because uh, for the last couple of days I've been here I've heard the word bank town and the next word is stabbing <laughs> and I think bush, bush shelters or something mm. so <laughs> I don't know yeah bush shelters so. <laughs> yeah stay away from the bush shelters so how many kangaroos have you seen since you've been here on average per day sadly absolutely zero I'm, I'm devastated I haven't seen no kangaroos or no koala bears that's incredible they're all about Bankstown they're usually bouncing around every street corner can't believe it N- not where I've seen I don't I think I've been on in the wrong places yeah they've probably all been stabbed all right to start with why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself okay that's the hardest question I think uh, <laughs> I try to be uh, succinct uh, uh, I studied that uh, I studied an undergraduate of uh, economics then the postgraduate studies in political science namely uh, I pursued that for a very bad reason and that was basically to argue and debate with members of (laughs) which was always always the best thing to do then I I went on to work for a a sort of global uh, global computer uh, manufacturer PC manufacturer and then 9-11 occurred and that sort of shifted my uh, priorities in life 
and I wanted to uh, help as much as possible to um, communicate authentic and mainstream and normative message of, uh, messages of Islam but I quickly realized that it wasn't actually non-Muslims that needed to uh, have a, a good understanding of Islam, it was Muslims themselves uh, there were so many conflicting messages out there that there was confusions both within the Muslim community and without and in the year 2000 I had established a publishing house called Amma Press which I did after leaving university mm -hmm. and through the publishing house I went on to work with many great uh, academic Muslim and non-Muslims and scholars non-Muslim Muslims, uh, Edward Said, Noam Chomsky, Imam Zaid, Hamza Yusuf, uh, you name it. I was very, very fortunate. Mashallah, uh, all any of the big names? Only uh, there's, there's many, William Blum. Uh, You've basically just listed my course reader for my degree in a list. I'm very jealous. <laughs> so, no, it's very fortunate. So um, through the means of the publishing house, I was able to work with these great, um, great minds and come together to try and understand, uh, to grab a, a greater understanding of the world that we're living in today. Hmm. Okay, that's very good, alhamdulillah. Um, oh wait, I get the mic to Sorry. ask a question. Okay, so you are, from my not so humble opinion, the greatest country, uh, in the greatest country, oh this is not my question <laughs> man, seriously, England is it. not the greatest country in the world. So you're British. <laughs> I am indeed, yes. Obviously, there are striking similarities between the Muslim populations of England and Australia. Uh, so both are non-indigenous minority communities in the so-called Western societies or Western countries. So in your brief time here, have you noted any particular differences between Muslim communities in England and Australia? Uh, well, both the Muslim communities in, in England and Australia have Muslims in them. <laughs> so that was the first observation I made, quite acute one, I think. So yeah. I was bang on there. Um, no, I think they, um, from what I've seen and what I've read, obviously I did some reading before I came to Australia. And there are many similar there are many similarities, but I think that the Muslim community in Britain has a slight edge over the Muslims in Australia, namely being that they've been uh, established longer than they have. Um, they've been long they've been established longer in, in the UK than they have in Britain, and that in and of itself has many advantages. And also, Muslims are significantly higher number than they are here. So, for example, there's approximately 2.8 million Muslims in Britain. And according to your latest census figures, there's just under 500,000 uh, Muslims. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and so, uh, again, that brings advantages and disadvantages. Uh, but re regarding, uh, I think, regarding the issues of social inclusion, political engagement, and the approach to Islam, I think we st there's many similarities. Um, the, the, the struggles that you're trying to make here uh, in combating uh, various forms of ignorance, some people will call that Islamophobia, some will say it's anti-Muslim bias, leave it to your listeners to decide whichever term they like to use. Um, again, I'll say bigotry um, has been perpetuated by various sectors within the media, uh, and I'm not saying all media is bad because that would be a sweeping generalization, which I try to avoid, and there, there's also similar challenges there. Political representation, we have uh, a lot, we have, we have uh, eight members of parliament, and I think you have two, but I could, you know, I'm sure your, re your listeners would know. Do you have two Maybe. or one? Or one? I'm not sure. Um I'm not actually Australian, so I don't follow up. Australian I'm not politics. Australian either. But I okay. So <laughs> we have we have eight members of parliament, um, and but regarding when it comes to the issue of Islam, we face similar problems, and that is, who do we turn to to obtain an authentic understanding of Islam? Mm. And uh, I think in Australia, perhaps you're struggling a little bit uh, more than us Brits, uh, because we stride between America and mainland Europe. And basically, you're so far tucked away around halfway around the globe. So um, I think that um, the Muslim community here has uh, perhaps 
not being able to benefit as much as we have in the UK of visiting scholars uh, over the over the cross of the last 50 years, I'd say. So, yeah, I think one of the biggest problems we've had is that, for example, um, uh, great religious scholars like uh, Sheikh Yusuf Al Fardawi were able to come to Europe and establish institutions where in Australia we've sort of been forget forgotten because it's just not on that route. Yeah, I mean, it's like um, I'm going to Paris. Um, along the way, I'm going to go to Australia. <laughs> so it's not it's not really the done thing, really, is it? So um, you've got to really, I think, um, because all these scholars, you know, they're incredibly busy. I know it's cliche, but it is true. I mean, they have, you know, really packed out itineraries. And to come to Australia, I think you, they would significantly have to sort of prepare that many months ahead. And uh, it's not on the way to anything. It's probably the end destination, so they would have to work out. Mm. But it's a shame, really. I think um, you guys need to do something. Um, I think you need to sort of do more... You need more PR work amongst the scholars to try and bring them over here. Mm. Yes, that's yeah. very true, inshallah. We agree. Okay, so just tell us why are you in Australia and have you enjoyed your stay here? Um, I loved my stay here. It's been very short. I arrived here on Saturday. Saturday. No, sorry. I arrived here on Friday and I'm leaving tomorrow, Wednesday at uh, 6 a.m. And the reason why I've enjoyed my stay is because I travel never to see places but to speak to individuals and people to have a better understanding. And I really do enjoy, um, I benefit so much engaging with individuals. Um, I've just come back from the University of New, uh, NSW, is it? Yeah, New NSW. South Wales. Yeah, New South Wales. And that was a really engaging uh, conversation. I had a discussion with the students there. And what was that discussion regarding? Um, it was to do with knowledge and how does one approach knowledge and how does one... Uh, how does, one, how does one approach knowledge vis-a-vis -vis the medium of a book? Uh, and the reason why I'm here is because I was invited by LMA to deliver a keynote speech in their conference, contextualizing... Australian Muslim Summit. Exactly. I was going to say contextualizing <laughs> Islam in Britain, which is a, a completely separate... He's hoping not for yeah. the LMA. <laughs> so my lecture that I delivered was on about... Uh, it's really about it's reconnecting with the Islamic tradition. What does the tradition mean? And it was issued, trying to give a, a message of hope to Muslims in Australia that um, you know, Islam is a very deep, broad, rich uh, uh, tradition and we shouldn't sort of um, restrict ourselves in the understanding of Islam. Mm. I just had a uh, quick question uh, for you. I mean, you've written uh, and edited many books, uh, The Broken Chain, Shattered Illusions, Islam Denounces Terrorism, Global Implications for a New American Century. Um, and with uh, God on our side, politics and the theology on the war of terrorism. Mm -hmm. Of all these books, which one was the most difficult to edit slash write? Um, that's a good question. You know, they're all not easy books, to be very honest with you, because you're tackling with so many diverse... Uh, so the topics. Uh, yeah. When you're working with, when you're working with a publication, which is an anthology, um, I'm looking, I'm approximately working with 25 different academics, approximately. Uh, and that can be very difficult because uh, you're trying to keep a coherent theme in the book. Um, I'll give you a very good example with, with God on Our Side. That's, that was the most taxing book, to be honest with you. I had to leave my job to do that book. Wow. Because it dealt with uh, neoconservatism and it dealt with Zionism, but it also dealt with um, uh, the manifestation of it, Muslim extremism in the contemporary context. And that was a very, you know, those were very tricky... Uh, there's a very tricky things to get a handle of and because people read these books you got to make sure that what you're transmitting is uh, is grounded and solid and robust um, so I would say with God on our side uh, that was the most that was a very difficult book very and it was and it's the largest of the la it, was, it was the last of the anthologies on uh, tackling the issue of war and terrorism 
keeping on with this uh, right-wing theme, I mean, you have a lot of right-wing pundits uh, that um, that quote Samuel Huntington mm -hmm. with the clash of the um, mm -hmm. with the clash of the uh, civilizations. Yeah, and I, I guess that kind of enhances their um, bigotry. Uh -huh. What's your take on his theory? Um, Samuel Huntington, clash of civilizations. Many people said 9/11 was proof was a hujah of of his thesis, uh, but. It, um, he he really said that the borders of the borders of Islamic of the Islamic world are bloody, and to many many people, 9/11 uh, was justification of his of his thesis. But uh, many people also have shown post 9/11 that what was happening in the world wasn't a clash of civilization; it's actually perhaps a clash within the civilization, and that was that from a, a handful of people, 19 people on the very fateful day of 9-11 hijacked the religion of Islam. This is what many scholars have spoken about and certainly Sheikh Hamza Yusuf was one of the first people to articulate this aspect. So it's incorrect to associate the uh, the, the devious action of a few to the actions of many. To the, civili to the civilization yes. of Islam. This is effectively mm. what yeah, had been yeah. done. Yeah, correct. And so many people like myself have been engaged in, a, in an ongoing debate and discussion and engagement with a wider uh, community of the world to say, look, you cannot, uh, you cannot hold accountable a great monotheistic religion, an Abrahamic faith, through the actions of 19, effectively, or 19 individuals. And unfortunately, Islam has been held uh, not only hostage by these 19 individuals, but it's been also uh, docked and condemned in the in the public opinion, in the arena of public opinion, and has been found guilty many times over. So. That's really interesting to me because I know when I was reading about you on the internet, one of the groups I think you're involved in is called Global Experts, is that right? Is that the United Nations organisation? Something to do with press and um, having uh, experts being able to yeah, talk. That's, that's the, it, was a, it was called the Rapid Response Unit Team of uh, the Alliance of Civilizations. Okay, because the thing that found, I found really interesting about that is it seemed to really buy into this civilizational mm -hmm. you know, theory of Huntington, um, which I thought was a really interesting way to approach the issue, to kind of, I guess, work within that paradigm which so many scholars seem to find so faulty. Yeah, um, again, it was an entrenchment. Also, Bernard Lewis was another very vocal voice. Yeah. Um, who's a historian of Islam, yet he, he was of, of medieval Islam, I should say. And um, so he, whereas uh, Sammy Hunterson came up with the thesis of a clash of civilization, uh, Bernard Lewis was perpetuating the myth of a good Muslim versus bad Muslim. Hmm. So these two paradigms were being fed into the White House in the immediate, after, uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And there was a really good book uh, <coughs> that came out uh, soon after called Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. It's a really good book. I believe the professor was a professor of anthropology. I could be mistaken. It was some time ago, I read the book. But so we would, you know, ordinary Muslims, uh, pretty much like your listeners, were, trying, were grappling with two misconceived ideas. One of the idea that um, Islam was in a camp, uh, had been formed within the camp of good Muslims and bad Muslims. And then uh, previously that was a Samuel Huntington thesis and that which Islam was at war with everybody else. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of extending on that point, um, I noticed through my search you tend to emphasize being a British Muslim. Would that be correct? Um, yes, I'm, a, I'm not one of these people. I'm not shy of saying I'm a British Muslim yeah. because it's important because I think that in, uh, in, the, in the modern arena, a lot of modern Muslims get confused by saying, well, can we say that? Are we American Muslims or are we just Muslims? Or are we Australian mm. Muslims? And I'll just say, look, just take a chill pill, relax. You know, you're living in the country. There's absolutely no, there's absolutely no 
there is absolutely nothing in Islam that prohibits you from calling yourself or associate yourself with the place you live. And many scholars were called uh, or associate with places like Imam Asuyuti. He was born in, yeah. in, in, in northern uh, north region of Egypt, which is Asuyuti. But on that point, further, it kind of reminds me of Tariq Ramadan's uh, thesis about multifaceted identities. Um, and there are arguments that um, such a line of rationalization is appeasement to the bigots and the Islamophobes. Um, I don't think so, in the sense that um, I think what he was trying to, what um, Tariq Ramadan is trying to articulate is the thesis that, again, that you can be, you know, Islam is a universal faith, it works basically anywhere. But for it to work effectively, you need to have intelligent followers. Yeah. And you can only become an intelligent follower if you have an understanding, you know, a good degree of understanding by Islam. So I think Tariq Ramadan's angle um, uh, has been, again, to sort of uh, calm issues down and saying, look, um, Islam is not a subversive faith. So if you have Muslims living in Australia or Sydney or even Bankstown, God mm. forbid, <laughs> there you go, uh, or in Britain even, that, you know, um, the Muslims are not a fifth column. Yeah. You know, they are individuals that contribute to society. They bring many things to the table uh, and they should be bringing things to the table as opposed to taking away things and contributing to society. So I think that his work in, in discussing a European Muslim um, is a really good contribution to this ongoing debate about the multiple identities of Muslims. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel as though there is importance in national identity, such as being British? Because obviously nationalism can turn into jingoism and xenophobia. However, do you feel as though nationalism has benefits which are specific to minority or second generation migrant communities? That's a very deep question. I have to, <laughs> I have to think about that. I mean, uh, regarding nationalism, I think I'm not... Um, so if I'm asked, I'm, yes, I'm a British Muslim. I mean, I, I haven't written anything in that arena to... You know, it's not a, I, it's not in my agenda. I mean, I don't really have an agenda other than trying to clarify uh, misconceptions about Islam. But I think that, um, particularly after 9/11, there was a deep concern amongst the, certainly the British Muslims, of which I, I can effectively speak of. I would like to think so, uh, about this dualism of identity, and a lot of people were lost. Um, is it okay, as I said, is it okay to be British, is it okay to be Muslim? You have certain individuals, certain groups will say, look, it's haram to be British Muslim because British society is a kufr society. Uh, they drink, they gamble and all these very strange things. That, you know, the worst possible characteristics they can uh, think of of any society, um, they take to be the norm. Not, not every society is perfect. Where on earth is there a perfect Muslim society? Do you know any, any perfect Muslim society? Yeah, exactly. It's just like that here too, actually. We have groups exactly the same. Yeah, so, you know, you know, this world is not meant to be a world of utopia. The world was created as a place of toil. Uh, you know, it's a world of trouble, it's a world of strife, it's a world of fitna. And the Muslim has been placed in this, in this arena uh, to be tested, to see what is it that we come out of. Do we cling to faith? Do we flee from faith? Do we have deeper trust in Allah? You know, and this is a trial and tribulation. It's only when you are entered into paradise that all the trials and tribulations are over. And that is as a consequence of how one lives a life in this troubled world. Just a question in regards to that. Um, I agree with a lot of the stuff that you're saying, but we do still live in a society that's based on, uh, we want, I won't say kufr, but non-Islamic values yeah. or un-Islamic values. How do we um, 
relate to that being Muslims having a message that um, basically orders us to establish a state of Islam some people can say that a state of Islam just means that you know you establish justice you establish uh, social and uh, political um, you know fairness between people um, you make sure that no one is is wronged all these things you know sp- certain principles but in the West do you think that it's easy to actualize these conditions that the Quran and the, the, the Hadith uh, place on us? Well, the Quran doesn't stay established in Islamic State, and I'd like to know where it does or in the Hadith, because um, all I, from what I understand, the Quran says establish Salah, establish Zakat, establish justice. So, as far as I understand it, as far as what I've read, and I certainly haven't read everything there is to offer uh, uh, regarding the word state, and the word state is actually a modern manifestation of the world. Uh, it is doesn't really come into the Islamic uh, worldview because we have a concept of Ummah uh, we're, we're like an Ummah-centric nation uh, if you would and I'm using the word nation now in the vernacular of our language which is English so it, I don't really um, understand I think there's a modern fallacy that people have an idea that Muslims uh, require a state uh, for us to achieve an equilibrium uh, but it's really the, I mean what what individual state are we at uh, it really comes down to personal agitation, uh, passing the buck. A lot of us don't want to do any um, individual efforts, so we said, okay, we'd rather have somebody above us to tell us that we have to pray or tell us. And this comes into the, the idea of a theocratic state. I mean, we really have an, in Islamic history, um, the idea of a theocratic state is pretty alien to Sunni Islam because uh, a theocratic state is, is tantamount to a dictatorial state where you have... Um, an individual who's effectively mandating that everyone follows Sharia and in the classical Islamic world Sharia wasn't something that was enforced apart from the uh, Mutasib so it was really it was really you know we did, there were no police seeking us whether or not we were praying or not uh, certainly there was regulation of the economics uh, but in the modern understanding of the word uh, that that is a, a pretty modern idea I would argue take it as quite a simplistic argument as well that the whole Muslim world is in a you know, is in agitation, is in flames, and how it will be solved is if we have one universal leader who happens to be Muslim, who unites the Islamic Ummah together, and that will solve the issues. Well, I don't really buy that because we had, quote unquote, we had an Islamic state um, that disintegrated um, in the presence of an Islamic state. And I would argue the reason why it disintegrated is because the individuals were no longer really, uh, you know, they didn't imbue the Islamic spirit. So it really comes down to uh, the individuals at the end of the day. But do you not think that there are uh, certain attitudes, no, certain waves uh, that are happening right now, such as wars, invasions, um, extreme poverty due to some uh, economic policies, things like that, that can't just be changed um, using democracy, that something more has to be changed, like you know, a, um, a pivotal change in the mode of governance. Well, let's have a look. Shall we see what happened with the Arab Spring in Egypt? I mean, that's going to be, the whole world will be looking at that. If, it's, if they fail, then again, that will, uh, you know, that will indicate to the critics that when you have quote-unquote Islamist uh, members are ruling a government, uh, because obviously we know uh, prior to that we had Turkey, but before that we had Algeria. And again, uh, people were democratically elected uh, but then they got quashed by the army, so it's going to be very interesting. I think the whole world is watching. There's a lot of there's a lot of pressure on Morsi to uh, you know to provide uh, 
provide evidence of the of the rhetoric that has been going on, and we wish we everyone should wish him well because it's a mammoth task. Mm. And I think that we have too many armchair critics. I hope I'm not an armchair critic, uh, but inshallah, let, let's see what happens because um, again, a lot of a lot of people have been discussing ideas that existed in a pre-modern world uh, in the absence of modern institutions, uh, and now let's see what happens when you apply that. I would hope there will be justice, I hope there will be freedom, I hope the persecution will stop, I hope that the economic policies will it's be on par, but these things are not going to happen overnight. I was just going to ask you, back in uh, 2009 you wrote an article about change within the Muslim community. Is the, Arab, is, is the Arab Spring what you imagined when you wrote that article? And what do you see as the next step in terms of the Arab Spring? Um, I wasn't thinking of the Arab Spring. As, uh, I think everybody in the whole planet was caught off guard. I think even the people involved in the Arab Spring didn't plan that. I think the Arab Spring was a spontaneous uh, uh, reaction to the trampling of individuals', lib individuals rights and individual liberty. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, that, that really shows people's power. Um, as regards to the future, um, obviously we've seen a domino effect. Uh, unfortunately, Syria is stuck in a quagmire right now. There is uh, a little bit of murmurs in the UAE uh, that was quashed quickly by um, the government. Um, and I think wherever you find people uh, who have been oppressed, uh, they're not going to sit quiet. Um, and again, that's part of the world that we live in. Unfortunately, we don't live in a utopian world. And I'm sure you wish and I wish that there was no oppression in the world. But unfortunately, where you have human beings, there will be tyranny, there will be sadness, there will be happiness, there will be tears. So I think, for, again, um, what lessons have going to be learned? I think the whole world is now looking at Tunisia with the party and also with Egypt uh, because these are, again, quote unquote, these are Islamist leaders who have, been, who have been told for many years are evil and the personification of evil in the world. Now that they have been democratically elected uh, through legitimate means, let's see what uh, sort of policies they enact. Yeah. Now your education background is fascinating. You have done previous research into the rise of anti-Semitism in the modern Muslim world and the radicalization of Muslim youth, among other things. You are, I believe, a PhD candidate at Oxford University, yes. researching Salafism and Al-Qaeda. I could ask endless questions about your research, but owing to time constraints, we'll limit it to just two. So what is the most surprising conclusion you've reached through your research, one which challenges the <laughs> challenge Let me, uh, ask this question have you experienced uh, what's the word I learned the other day have you experienced cognitive dissonance no um. this is just a second when I wrote this question NASA said oh make sure you put cognitive dissonance in there Look, I'm like I what does Facebook. that even mean it's really awesome nothing to do I, with I the question I'm, by the mercy of God I've not uh, I've not accepted cognitive dissonance because I'm very comfortable with who I am I am very uh, I'm very satisfied with the, with the intellectual um, uh, paradigms uh, that I work within. You know, I'm very comfortable with that. Um, cognitive dissonance uh, is a problem amongst mm. young Muslims. And as we just discussed earlier, one of them is uh, could arrive of split identities. Yeah, yeah. They don't know who they are. They know they're Muslim, but then what does Muslim mean? Are we supposed to be fundamentals? Uh, is that a good word to use? Are we supposed to be uh, miserable Muslims? Are we meant not to be smiling? What, I mean, what, what is Islam? Yeah. What is Muslim? And these are big questions that are confronted. And then when you see Muslims stuck between a rock and a hard place, when they see um, what's going on TV, should we should we embrace the West when, uh, according you know, through what's being projected on TV, that the West is, you know, antagonistic to Islam? So all these questions 
you know, cause a dissonance <laughs> with an, an individual. Okay. Uh, Your answer was much smarter than Nasser's question was. So let me just finish can the question. Just, uh, yeah? Can we just let Aftab explain to our listeners what cognitive dissonance means? <laughs> Is this because you don't quite know yourself, I know Nasser? exactly what it means. <laughs> <laughs> so um, other than explaining a cognitive dissonance is when you have a... Um, I'd like to explain. You're going to explain so the scholar, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're wrong, actually. Here's this my take than, from the last two days I've read on Facebook. So a, you have cognitive, dissonance, a cognitive dissonance occurs when you have a sort of schizophrenia um, in the mind. And this has occurred when I would argue that people are pushed in the corner and not equipped to handle that. So a good example is in and around identity crisis. Mm. Um, you go home and you're told, you know, you're told to hate the kuffar, or hate the non-Muslims, and you come out and people are saying, no, no, it's okay, you should embrace everybody, you should talk to everybody. And if they don't if the, if if have access um, to an educational or an intellectual and epistemological worldview, mm. uh, they don't know really what they're doing. So you have a cognitive dissonance when you're, you're like, almost like a yo-yo. You know? yeah. One day you're good Muslim, next you're bad Muslim, next you're good to a non-Muslim, then you hate a non-Muslim. You like the West and you hate the West. What is this? Yeah. And that causes a crisis within the self. Absolutely. Uh, that's what I would say. What would you say? I think uh, very similarly to you. Um, <laughs> Just a few amendments but, uh, from Nasser's yes. years of research. I think if I say anything, I will sound as a complete uh, Facebook junkie. Yep. So I will not say anything you've explained okay. to me. Please, <laughs> And regarding your question about my research, okay. I haven't concluded I'll anything because I'm about to start oh. research in, uh, at the university. But in your prior research, yeah, perhaps? Regarding with, the, with the regard to anti-Semitism, um, the title of the work is a three-volume work, inshallah. Mm, it's called inshallah. The Curse of Shylock, The Rise of uh, Anti-Semitism in the Modern Muslim Mind. And I began, work, I began, I began that research many years ago because um, I just felt this is very controversial, which I'm going to say now. From so, for some of you, wait, wait, wait. We're going to get this on tape. You're, you're prove it happened. I just thought that as Muslims, we need to understand the sort of plight of of the Jews from history. Um, and what I want to understand was that you know what was the sort of persecution? What sort of persecution had the Jews faced from uh, from the very early time? From the pharaohs. Uh, from the pharaohs, Israel, yeah. from the pharaohs to the uh, founding of Christendom to the creation of the modern Middle East and in the in the current era. And it was really, it was a personal odyssey to be found with you, uh, from how how stereotypes of Jews uh, framed uh, class stories such as Dracula, which is actually based upon, Bram Stoker's Dracula is actually based upon uh, a, a, an idea called blood libel, which was uh, a thing that used to plague, uh, used to be a stereotype around Jews up till 1923 where it was firmly believed that uh, over Passover that, that Jews required to drink the virgin blood of Christian boys. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, so that's called blood libel. That's so really something interesting. Something like that, for example. Yeah. And um, uh, what I wanted to do it was, again, it was a personal odyssey mm. um, and understanding the reaction uh, of the founding fathers towards the Jews, the issue of the Black Plague is blamed on the Jews. Everything literally is blamed on the Jews. But unfortunately, I stopped that at a protest. Um, you know, I just really was, I was really uh, upset, not, is, is too much of a weak word to it. I was shocked by the sort of attitudes to, um, you know, the issue today, the political climate is that when Israel invite, invaded the West Bank and Gaza, um, uh, since that occurred, I haven't really returned back to that. And I wrote another article called The Moral Compass. And I just, I argued in that article that, you know, Muslims and Jews are not going to get anywhere because Muslims pro-Muslims, Jews pro-Jews. I mean, it's just yeah. human nature. And I said, look, 
uh, I was writing for Muslims and Jews as minorities in, uh, outside the country. So Muslims outside Islam Dom and Jews outside a Jewish Dom, which doesn't really exist, it's basically Israel. And I said, look, the only way we're going to move forward is if we can transcend our own personal attachments and create a more comfortable. Well, my suggestion was that um, Muslim Jews should, should come together and create a 10-point plan and they should say, look, these are 10 moral and ethical aspects that if they're violated, we all need to come out and condemn yeah. as a community. Uh, that's not the solution, I would say, but I think that's a very first important step. We, we seem to have a lot in common. I mean, we both read from behind the book, we both read from uh, right to left, uh -huh. and I believe um, when we count to 10, it's almost similar to the way they count to 10. Sure, sure. No, no, exactly. I mean, you know, like, for example, the question I would, the, to, to answer that in a, in a Ridley sort of way uh, is that, you know, a lot of people, when it comes to thinking about Islam, they can't even think about thinking about Islam because they have so many social constructs. And this became worse uh, following 9-11 because when you mentioned the word Islam, you have so many uh, cognates to that. And when 9-11, a lot of these suspicions were, uh, were validated by a lot of non-Muslims. And so therefore, yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, Islam is barbaric. Islam is against Muslim. Islam is against the West. And so when, you, when you're talking about Islam and you're engaging with individuals who are from non-Islamic faith, you got to, first of all, you got to get beyond these blockages. And that in and of itself is very difficult before you even tackle Islam. So you'd go through it to try and tackle and engage these um, social prejudices that have been built up. And that's because of, that's due to socializing, primarily through the media. Uh, uh, in America, most of, the, most of the American, uh, the absolute vast majority of Americans don't travel outside America. So they get their understanding of the world through the news. And certainly, they get their understanding of Islam vis-a-vis -vis through the news. And so when you saw all these Muslims shouting and screaming, they didn't understand why they were doing that. They were just scared by the pictures. So, yeah. uh, and, I, and, and again, so that goes and reinforces these sort of social obstacles in trying to understand Islam. I'd like to discuss more of uh, this um, Israel thing with yeah. you because I'm pro-Muslim. Oh, I'm pro-Islamics, two of us. It's yes. interesting, isn't it? <laughs> what, what, was it? what was the chance of that happening? I know. <laughs> small world. In it's a small town. world, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, when you mean pro-Muslim, do you mean... Uh, what do you mean, pro Bani Muslim or Bani Islam? Because obviously we are, we're not tribal. Muslims are not tribalistic. I'm not pro Muslim. Everything. I'm pro Muslim when Muslims stand under in the face of truth and justice, not oppression or. Repression. We can do this off air because we can take an hour discussing this, and I would love to. But inshallah, yes. Um, yeah. So my question now is: uh, Despite arguments by Ramadan that Muslims can successfully maintain and contribute to the national identity of European countries. This doesn't seem to have traction amongst most or, you know, mainstream non-Muslim populations. Uh, it almost seem as though Muslims are more vilified now than ever, even more vilified than 9-11. Do you have any theories as to why this is true or at least appears to be true? I think, you know, the, I think uh, there's a large degree of responsibility uh, um, falls on the media. I'm not blaming the entire world, world woes on the media, but, you know, uh, it's not. It's not the, the philosophy is no news is good news. It's bad news is good news uh, when it comes to the media. And I think that a lot of people, as I as I mentioned regarding America specifically and how they sort of obtain uh, their understanding of the world, are through the media uh, are through the medium media lens. And I think that the media has a huge responsibility um, to create better, accurate reporting about Islam and Muslims. And certainly in the UK right now, uh, there's an ongoing independent uh, uh, review regarding. Uh, the media, not not per se specifically about Muslims, but also the sort of uh, 
the way the media handles and investigates and investigative journalism because it's really due to a series of scandals that occurred in the press regarding hacking into uh, private voicemails and, and the such. So on the one hand, I certainly, uh, I certainly am an individual that doesn't uh, lay the blame entirely upon the media, because when you talk about media, we're talking about individuals. Um, and then if you say the media is all evil, I haven't met all the media. Uh, and certainly I know many very good journalists, and I know very good uh, in individuals who are working within the media. So I'm not saying all the media, but certainly the media is a problem. Then we have ideological in individuals who are ideologically inclined. Uh, that happen to be amongst the political intelligentsia and then here we have the influence of right-wing think tanks such as the New Conservatives who are very very powerful in the in the sort of post 9-11 um, is, is that even now? I thought they might there um No, I'm saying that they were very powerful in the post line in the immediate afterward in the immediate aftermath but their sort of uh, their sort of influence has sort of waned in the light of a growing outrage by the masses um, but it's still there. I mean, they've they really have started to concentrate. I mean, particularly within uh, the uh, the uh, the PAC sort of political action committees in America, and also various think tanks in Britain and America. They are, you know, um, AEI, for example, the American Institute Enterprise Institute in America, mm. and you have various think tanks in the UK. Um, you know, they have a lot of money behind them, and so they petition. They uh, you know produce very good material. Uh, in very good materials and very glossy material and very sensationalist material and I would be concerned if I was not a Muslim but I happen to be Muslim and I happen to have a good understanding of the Muslim community and what you read is are, are not the norms and I think unfortunately we're going through a phase where there there is agitation in the house of Islam you know there is some there are some issues about why there's issues are, you know who provoked these issues you can blame it on America you can blame it on Israel I don't know you can blame it on the, anybody but the, they exist these issues so how do Muslims tackle these issues in Europe for example we had the Danish cartoons we had uh, very angry Muslims storming down you know embassies and rows with flags saying 7-7, seven, seven. another 7-7 seven, seven is on the way, uh, behead those uh, who insult Islam. I mean, these are not very good, uh, these are not very good expressions or, uh, or manners to sort of uh, show your displeasure. And, I, and that just goes into reinforce this issue. And so people, you know, our brain is constructed, we have three elements of brain, two important aspects are the neocortex and the reptilian brain. And uh, you know, neurists talk about the neuro, the, the the neocortex is what controls our intelligence, our thinking, poetry, you know, high culture, and the reptilian brain is the the, the fight or flight aspect, breathing, the base. And unfortunately, when non-Muslims are seeing these very scary images in in the world, in the media, their reptilian brain takes over. So the neocortex shrinks, and people are in this reactive mode. And then, if you if you imagine how many hundreds of million people are watching and reading the media. You know, the media does feed into that aspect. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm again, um, there's blame within uh, Muslims, um, and the, unfortunately, you know, uh, we tend to make matters worse. Uh, and then we do have ideological individuals who, you know, they're placed in government, they are placed in media. And again, this is this is this is dunya people. You know, this is the nature of the world. It's not going to be. Uh, life is not a bed of roses. It's called earth. It's called dunya. It's called, uh, you know, there will be troubles. There will be turmoil. But at the end of the day, the Quran asks us, you know, that you've been put here for a purpose. And uh, fitna, you know, as you know, is something that is something put that is put through, put through fire. Normally, it's gold that is put through fire. And the idea is, what what happens when it comes out? Do you change your state, or is it uh, as gold is put to fire, the state of gold never changes? You know, all the impurities will come out through the fire. So fitna is also, uh, you know, fitna is associated with uh, sedition and seduction. 
but it also has an aspect of purification as well. You know, what, 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 how are you in the face of fitna? Mm. How do you come out? Do you come out a better person? Do you come out a worse person? And we we have fitna all around us. We have fitna within us. We have fitna, you know. We read about fitna in the newspaper. So uh, that's a that uh, that is I'm um, that is a very good question. And uh, I'm sure your listeners may disagree with me. I'm sure they will d- disagree with me. But um, these are just some of my thoughts in relation to that. Jazakallah khairan. Um, unfortunately, I'd love to spend another couple of hours with you. <laughs> but um, alhamdulillah, I mean, over the last 45 minutes, we've laughed, we've cried, uh, we've loved, and we've lost. Our lives have changed forever. <laughs> yes, uh, alhamdulillah. Um, I would like to. But we're to still all cold. Sorry? But we're still all cold. Yeah. Yes, uh, well, you know, uh, I'm not actually very cold. This is, this is my perfect weather. We're all not stabbed, though. So I was about to say that. Yeah. I was about to say that. <laughs> we remain <laughs> unscathed this time. Alhamdulillah. Survived, Survived another night. Yeah, let's tell another tale. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah. Uh, brother uh, Sheikh Dr. Bahrul Uloom Aftab Malik, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's a great privilege and honor, and thank you very much for interviewing me, and thank you for your listeners to listening to me. Thanks. And uh, can you also please tell our listeners to listen to the alchemy of truth um, always? <laughs> listen to the alchemy of truth always. No, and the alchemy of truth. The alchemy of truth. Yes. And also tell them that uh, the Y Factor. No, tell them the Y Factor is not a good re- uh, radio show. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't say that. I, I'm not even aware of the Y Factor. That would be unfair of me to say that. No, it's true. <laughs> it's true. You can trust us. Yeah, to take our words for it. Okay. <laughs> listen to the alchemy, alchemy of truth, and the don't really listen to the Y Factor. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> that is, is going to be worse That's than the Fuzzy Tube thing. <laughs> what is the Y Factor? It's uh, another radio You wouldn't show. understand. It's just uh, okay. nothing. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's totally, no one, un- no one uh, listens to it or ever goes on their farms or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't have a thousand totally people irrelevant. on their Facebook Oh my Facebook God. Again, Jazakallah Khairan. Jazakallah Khairan. I hope you have a good trip, inshallah, to England. And please remember us in your dua. And please, you know, think seriously about coming back to Australia. And eat lots of quavers. Oh, I miss quavers. Quavers, yeah. Well, I'll be honored to come back, inshallah. I'll pay your ticket, inshallah. I'm a millionaire. My too. You live here, bro. Okay, and now we come to the end of our show from the Alchemy of Truth. We'll see you, inshallah, next week from the show's presenter, Nasr Khatib and Anurah Zayed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bye.